In the name of Jesus. Amen. In the 18th century, there was a new attitude toward the Bible. And the attitude was to read the Bible as if it were any other literature book, any other book that you would pull off the shelf. In other words, that it was not the Word of God, but that it was written by fallible men. And so because of that, it wasn't inspired or infallible or inerrant, but rather it had simply the opinions of men and what they thought was happening. So the Bible was not history or historical accounts of eyewitness reports. For them, this group of people thought that the Bible was a myth, just one big myth or Aesop's fables, some, something of this nature, just stories for us to read and then try and grab some lesson to learn out of it. So what they would do is they would disregard any supernatural, anything that happened, anything that was miraculous in the text. <clears throat> And what they searched for was the moral of the story. So they would read something, and if it had anything supernatural, well, they said, well, that didn't happen, but the real message is hidden behind that. And that's the moral of the story that we have to pull out of this. All of this thinking was a result of the Enlightenment, which was a very bad thing. This ended up being called, this attitude towards the Scriptures, ended up being called higher criticism or historical criticism, that you criticize the history of the text. So you stand above the scriptures and the scriptures are below you. You know more than those writers did. So you can, you can discern what is true and what's not true, what actually happened versus what they thought happened, things like this. So th- there was a movement called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. So we said, well, the Bible doesn't tell us who Jesus really is because it's mixed with all of this junk. What we have to do is find who the real Jesus was. Who was he? Just a side note here. What these people did is, in order to disprove the existence of God, they dismissed all of the evidence for the existence of God before. Uh, All of the eyewitness testimony, all of the historical accounts, those sort of things. And then after they've dismissed all of the evidence for God, then they said, well, there's no evidence (laughs) For God. You see, it was the circular reasoning that they, they had. Okay, <clears throat> well, one of the people who brought, um, sorry, who bought into this new attitude toward the Bible was actually a founding father of the United States of America. Uh, he was the third president of the United States. He is on the nickel and on the $2 bill. Um, his name is Thomas Jefferson. And he was a naturalist. He was a deist. He was a higher critic. He had a very low view of the Bible. He was not a Christian. Not the way we are. He he was not. He dismissed the very things that we hold dear in our our hearts, the things that are true in the scriptures. In, In fact, in 1804, he wrote a book called The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. In 1813, in, on October 12th, he wrote a letter to John Adams. <clears throat> and this is just excerpts from that letter. I can't read the whole thing here. But just some parts of it. And I want you to hear how he speaks of the scriptures. How he speaks of the word of God. Listen, just pay attention here. 
in extracting the pure principles which Jesus taught, we should have to strip off the artificial vestments in which they have been muffled, muffled by priests who have uh, travestied them into various forms as instruments of riches and power to them. So it was simply, uh, he said that the people, that the priests would use the Bible as a means of financial gain, things like this. And then he says this, we must dismiss the nonsense. We must reduce our volume of the Bible to the simple evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Select, even from them, the very words of only of Jesus. And there will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I've performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is, here's the part, which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. And so what he did then is he took a razor and he took glue and he took paper and sat down and cut verses out of the Bible. And he said, this sounds good and this is done. This is a diamond and this is not. And he made his own Bible. The diamonds for him were Jesus' moral teachings. The dunghill were the miracles, the supernatural things, things he spoke about the kingdom to come, the forgiveness of sins, those sort of things. All of the things that were offensive to reason, he cut out. He tore them out of the scriptures. Now, do you know, the reason I'm saying this is, do you know which account wasn't in his Bible? The one that you just heard for today. That one. The feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, he took a razor and he cut that section out. Because it wasn't useful. There's there's no no moral code there. There's nothing to learn from this. Uh, It's just a a a miraculous, sort of fantastical account, or, or sorry, story or fable of something that happened. And there's nothing really to learn much from that. So he cut it out. The truth is that Jefferson was not the only higher critic. <clears throat> liberal churches, a lot of the liberal churches in our midst, are higher critics. They reject the historicity of the scriptures. There are liberal denominations, entire church bodies, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that is the ELCA. Uh, there are some uh, in the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America some Anglican, Methodist, so on and so forth. You can even find them in our own synod who have not been put under church discipline. There are churches that are teaching these sort of things. What they do is they don't physically cut the Bible up with a razor and glue. But spiritually and in, their, in practice, they do. They preach that the Feeding of the 5,000 is something like a myth or a parable. Some of them would say this, that they would say it's not history, it's not an eyewitness report, it's just a moral story. What what they've done is they've demythologized 
the scriptures. We've taken the myth out of it and we're left with what's pure. The point is they try to get behind the text. They get into a deeper meaning, get into the real lesson and the story of it. So some of these churches that do accept, the liberal churches that do accept the feeding of the 5,000, but then say this didn't really happen the way it's said, uh, the, the way it's written, what do they say? Well, they would say of the feeding of the 5,000 that it doesn't matter what happened. What matters is the story behind it and the, the, the lesson. So they say, we know that five pieces of bread and two, uh, five piece of bread and two fish can't feed 5,000 people. That's impossible and that's ridiculous. So what, what actually happened? Well, then they say, this is what most likely happened. That there were, the, the little boy comes up to Jesus and he says, look, I have five pieces of bread and two fish. And uh, everyone looks at his, his sort of, they're moved by his, uh, by his kindness and his ignorance. That he thinks this is actually going to do something. And everybody sees this gesture and then they're moved and then they start to share with others what they had. So some people had more in their bags or wherever they were holding the bread, and some people had none, and what they started to do was break the bread and give it to the people who didn't have any. So in fact, it's not a miracle at all. All it is is a big story of how people were moved to share with one another. That's what it is. And so the moral of the story is we should all share. It's about sharing, it's about friendship, it's about community, it's about redistribution of wealth, you take, it's communist. It, you take what some has and then give it to another. This is the, the point of it. It's this social justice. And the liberal churches will use then John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 to open things and name their ministries, uh, these food banks, uh, these ministries under John 6 or the feeding of the 5,000. And they'll feed the homeless under this with this text. And they have community outreach, things like this. Because they take Jesus' words where he says, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. So they take that and say, well, this is our job. This is what he's teaching us. <clears throat> A comment here. It's good. It is good to feed the hungry. It is good to share and help other people. It is good to... Uh, do this out of generosity, out of thankfulness for what Christ has done for you, faith in the gospel. It's good to be moved by the self-donation of Christ to then donate to things to others. That's good. It's a, I'm not putting that down. But if that is all you got from the feeding of the 5,000, then you didn't read it. And in fact, you are faithless and you have rejected the very point of the feeding of the 5,000. You didn't get it. So there are three problems with demythologizing this. The first is 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. All scripture. It doesn't make this distinction between diamonds and dung. It says all of it is useful and profitable and good. The second thing is that this is indeed a historical account. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record this. Jesus did this on two separate occasions. He fed a group of 5,000. He fed a group of 4,000 with very, very little. Um, There were eyewitness accounts. This was public. 
in front of many, many people. It was verified. The witnesses, in fact, the people who saw it were astonished and they wanted to crown Jesus with a physical crown and put him as the king. And I preached about this last year. They wanted to make him their president, their king, to say, guess what? We don't have to worry about money anymore. You just keep doing this and we don't have to work. That's what they wanted. So they knew. They knew what happened. They didn't want to crown someone who just shared. They wanted to crown someone who could do miracles. The third point is this, and this is the most important one. By demythologizing the text, they lose the gospel. And they turn this entirely into the law. It turns John chapter 6 from the gospel into the law. It turns what Jesus did for sinners into what we must do for one another. And that's now the focus. The focus is not what Jesus did, but what you ought to do for others. So it's not about God's work, but it's about your work, what you ought to do. So there's this task and this assignment. So you read the reading of the feeding of the 5,000, and then you come to the conclusion, well, guess what? You all have a task and an assignment now. You have to go do this. Go be more generous than you've ever been and share with others. This is work, and it's all the law. It's moralism. It's a legal uh, system. The truth is this, that John chapter 6 is useful and it is important. The feeding of the 5,000 is historical. It is a historical account. And it is the gospel. It is comfort. It is comforting for two reasons. Because it shows you that Jesus is God. Very simply. He does what no man can do, only what God can do. He feeds a multitude in the wilderness. He feeds Israel with manna from heaven. He feeds people with five, 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. The same God who did that in the Old Testament and who the Psalms uh, magnify and proclaim as the Lord is the same one standing in the wilderness and giving these things. There's one, one, that is him. So that's the first thing, is that it tells us that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed God. And the second thing is this, is that it shows you not only that he is God, but what kind of God he is. He is one who cares about sinners. One who cares about their stomachs and the pain that they have in their stomach, the most common, mundane, ordinary pain that a human being goes through several times a day. And God thinks about that and he cares about that. If if he cares about that pain and that annoyance in your stomach, do you think he cares about the other pains? Of of course he does. This tells you what he thinks of and what's valuable to him. He feeds the ungodly and the unrighteous and he is merciful to them. They didn't deserve bread and yet he gave them bread. He could have sent them away empty, but he didn't. He filled them. This is the same Jesus who a few weeks ago, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, refused to turn stones into bread to feed his own stomach. He was famished. He was emaciated. He was dying. And he would not feed himself. But today... He feeds 5,000 people because they were a little bit hungry. 
You have a God who not only notices you, but who cares more about you, and he cares more about you than uh, you can ever care for yourself. He cares more about you than he cares about himself. He thinks more of you than he thinks of himself. You have a God who didn't use his power for himself, but one who uses it for you. He provides not only for your physical needs, but for your eternal needs. And he uses this to then teach you of the forgiveness of sins. That you need his forgiveness more than you need bread. More than you need water and clothing and air in your lungs. You need the forgiveness of sins. And he gives it fully and freely, completely, entirely in his cross. He gives it to you and he bestows it upon you in your baptism and the word that is preached to you in the Lord's Supper that you feed and eat. That is the very body of Christ. It is for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the same Jesus who did not allow the Jews to seize him that day and crown him with gold, but then who later on allowed them to seize him and arrest him and tie him and crown him with thorns. That is the same Jesus. And why? Because he came to give you not only perishable bread for life, but he came to be the bread of life. To be food that gives eternal life. He gives his body and his blood as true food and true drink. His, he gives eternal life to all who eat in faith. He feeds his body and he feeds our bodies and our souls with his body. As food keeps your body alive, so too Jesus keeps your soul alive. That in his death and his resurrection, he wins for you the kingdom of heaven. And he gives you something that cannot be taken away. So, we keep all the words of Scripture. And we don't cut them out. We don't cut out some of his words. We, we, because when we do this, we lose not just the story or the miracle or the account, but we lose the gospel itself. We lose who that God is. The very thing that saves sinners, the very comfort of it. So, yes, you ought to be generous and you ought to share and help and do all these sorts of good things, fine, yes. But that's not why the church exists. The church doesn't exist to eradicate poverty or to do these sort of works of mercy and, hunger and solve hunger and violence. The church exists to feed the souls of sinful mortals, to feed them Christ Jesus, the very bread of life, who gave himself as a sacrifice in the atonement for the sins of the entire world. God loves you and he thinks so highly of you, all of you. He will always provide for you. He will always provide for you daily bread. He will always give you what you need for this body and soul. He will give you everything you need for the, the, the needs of the body. Even at, if you have to wait for him, he will give it to you in his day and in his time. And if he does these things for your minor, uh, common, mundane, insignificant needs... How much more will he do it for your ultimate needs? What you need the most. He opens his flesh and feeds you himself. And he gives you in his death and resurrection all, all that, that he won for you on the cross. In baptism, in the word, and in the Lord's Supper, even now, this very day. Amen. Hear the words of this hymn. This is him 744, 774, feed thy children God most holy.
Feed thy children, God most holy, and comfort sinners poor and lowly. O thou bread of life from heaven, bless the food thou here hast given. As these gifts the body nourish, may our souls in graces flourish, till with saints in heavenly splendor, at thy feast do thanks we render. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.